What a day to be in the house of the Lord. Remember, you are the house of the Lord. Now, we're going to talk about that a little bit today. Before we get into that, though, I just want to start off by saying, the past several days, I have been encountering all sorts of little distractions. Just as I'm going through life, going on the journey the Lord has for me, knows that I, I know that I have appointments to make and things like that, and stuff just keeps, keeps getting thrown up in my way, in the way of our family. And it's been frustrating and aggravating and distracting. Has anybody else been experiencing that this week? Good, it's not just us. Fantastic. You know what I've found is that in each of these situations, I've, an, I've had an opportunity to lose my peace. And in some of them I have. And as I've been watching and paying attention to this pattern, it's like, okay, Lord, I know you're training me through this. This is here for a reason. I don't like this. But I know that I'm supposed to keep my eyes focused on you. None of these things that have taken place in our lives have actually amounted to very much of anything. But in the moment, it feels like it's huge, right? Like yesterday, we woke up and our refrigerator was leaking. That's fun, right? But I tell you what, the Lord actually helped us to to work through that problem together. We got it resolved, and it wasn't a big deal, ultimately. And we're still able to stay on track with the things that we had to do that day. And then I had my my tire went flat as I was driving up to an appointment out of town. So I'm there on the side of the road changing the tire. Ultimately, well, not on the side of the road, I'm sorry. I, I stopped at a service station, so I was very safe. However... It was something that could have really taken my emotions away. And then this morning we had, our gas meter was starting to, I'm sitting there in the early morning hours and I hear a popping sound outside the house. What on earth is going on? It was our gas meter. Turns out our gas meter had gone. The gas company came out this morning, repaired that for us and everything was okay and everything stayed on track. But every one of these things has just felt like, ah. And I think we're all in that state of like, I, I'm very thin on my, my reserves, my ability to handle any of these things. And so everything bumps me past my margin, right? But God is there with us in the midst of these things. So I just, I just want to take a moment before we even get into the message to just acknowledge I'm here, we're here, and some of you all are here as well. And some of you online who I can't see your hands are probably feeling the same thing or going through a similar experience. So we're just going to pray right now. Okay? Father, I just thank you for your peace. I thank you, Lord, that you are in charge of this, this whole thing. And Lord, you have been calling us to keep our eyes focused on you. And Lord, there have been so many little nits and distractions that have been coming up in our way, Lord. So we just, we come once again and humble ourselves before you, Jesus, and we say, come, Holy Spirit. Come, Prince of Peace. Come, King of Kings. Lord of Lords. My life is in your hands. Lord, take care of every, every challenge, every struggle, everything that is in front of me, everything that I'm in the midst of right now, Lord. My life is submitted to you. And I repent right now, Lord, of allowing my anxiety to overtake my faith, my trust, and my hope in you. Lord, help me to be at peace and at rest in the midst of every trial, in the midst of every burden that comes my way. Lord, my life is in your hands, and I, I, look to, 
I look to the hills to see who my help, where my help will come from. Lord, my eyes are lifted towards you once again. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, thank you for your victory over everything that I've already seen happen, everything I'm in the midst of, and everything that is coming. Lord, your victory is true and it is eternal. And my hope rests in you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. If you receive it, lay hold of it. Okay? I was reminded yesterday of something that I want to share with you. I had the opportunity to go to a celebration of life for a, a, a pastor that was part of our, our network here in the Assemblies of God, a very close friend of Pastor Lanny, Dr. Sullivan, Sullivan McGraw. He passed away a couple weeks ago. And um, he's a real man of God. Uh, just so much of his life paralleled our spiritual father's life. And it was, it was an honor to be able to go and honor, honor him and just see the the celebration that his people put on for him and all that he had been and has been um, and is in the kingdom and to see the legacy that's been left by his life. And one of the things that was shared was that he would teach his people about and remind them that it's not just about the mountaintops where we declare the victory of the Lord, but it's declaring the victory of the Lord in the valley that really matters most. And so when we find ourselves in these times of trials, when we find ourselves in the midst of whatever struggle it is, it's important for us to praise, worship Him, and declare victory ahead of it showing up. Because His victory is eternal. That's not part of my message today. But somebody needs to hear that right now. I need to hear that right now. It's important for us in the midst of the struggle to cry out to Him. All right. And not only cry out to him for help, of course, we should cry out to him for help. He's the one who helps us. He's the one who brings the victory. But the declaration of victory in the midst of circumstances that would look the other way is an important thing for us who are the people of the kingdom who live from an eternal place here in time and space. We represent his victory in our circumstances. Thank you, Lord. Well, we've been on a journey together these past several weeks. Some of you have, I think almost all of you have been here with us during this time. Everybody that I can see, hopefully if you're online, you've been following along with us. If you're new, welcome. And uh, we're going to be getting into the Word today. So hopefully you guys brought your Bibles. Who's got their Bibles? Lift your Bibles up. If it's in your phone, you can lift your phone up. <laughs> we're going to be putting them, uh, the Scripture up here on the screen. But I encourage you to follow along in whatever media of the word you have with you. It's important for you to see these scriptures in context in the location of the Bible that you have and that you carry around with you. And take highlights, take notes. Does anybody have notebooks with them today? Man, this is amazing. I'm so proud of you. Gold stars. Gold stars. It's important for us to be consuming his word. And it's, I think, as we come and we bring, we bring the word and we bring our notebooks, it shows and demonstrates to us a heart of expectancy for the Lord to, to really sow into us. So we're going to be on a journey here today, or we're going to continue our journey here today. So what, where we have been is we started last month looking back to that mountain that Caleb declared, give me my mountain. 
And when we look far enough back there, we recognize that that's not just any mountain. That, mount, that mountain was Hebron. And that place, Hebron, is a place of binding fellowship, binding friendship. It goes far enough, you go far enough back and you find that that's where Abraham had been residing when God was making covenant with him. And so it's really, it's a, a place of covenant fellowship. And we see how the enemy had tried to overtake that place and God's people came and took it back. And that's where we saw um, David initiated his, his reign as king over Judah. God installed him there at Hebron first for seven years before he moved him to Jerusalem, after he took Jerusalem. And they was then established there for 33 years. And then last week we went into looking at the temple. And Solomon building the temple, the dream of his father that his father was not allowed to bring into pass. But how David had prepared the way for his son to build the temple, a house for the Lord, and firmly established that place. And David had brought the Ark of the Covenant there to Jerusalem once again, firmly recognizing that we as a people are dependent on the presence of God, the person of God, the mercy of God here among us. And so he returned it to a place of prominence, but he was not able to ultimately build a house for the Lord because he had blood on his hands. And God said, you shed too much blood, but I'm going to give you a son and I'm going to give him peace all around and he is going to build a temple for my name. And so last week we talked about that, all that Solomon did to build that. And we spent a good amount of time looking into the sacrifices that were made in dedicating the temple. We also recognized that Solomon himself recognized that I'm building a house for God, but is this really a place where God can actually dwell? I mean, the highest heavens can't contain him. The best that I can hope for is that I have a place where we can burn offerings before him that brings him honor. But this right here is it's incomplete. It's, it's insufficient. There's more that's required. There's more that God has. But this is the most that we can do now. And they were extravagant in everything they did in building that temple. So today we're going to be moving from that point and, and going forward into the history here of the temple and the presence and sacrifice and get closer to really understanding what it is that God was after in defining all these things in time and space as types and shadows of the things that are to come. But before we jump forward too far, we're going to pull back a little bit here, back into that history that we've been spending time in. We're going to go back and look at David's life here in Psalm 51. So if you will, please turn with me to Psalm 51. As we've been going through this, you remember we've kind of been looking across history because there's a whole continuum of the story and there's important aspects of it along the way. And I think Psalm 51 is a really important aspect of where we're going. Now, Psalm 51 <clears throat> In your Bible, it might say what my Bible says, and that's this. For the director of music, a psalm of David, when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. This gives us a little bit of context for what David is saying here. And I think it's very important for us to understand the context of the words that we're reading in the Scripture. 
Because you'll understand the position that his heart is speaking from when he's declaring these things. Now, you'll remember that David had been unfaithful and had committed adultery with Bathsheba. And to cover up his sin, he sent one of his most faithful men into battle with the specific purpose and intent for him to be killed, to cover up his sin, because Bathsheba was bearing a child. And so when Nathan comes to him, his sin is exposed, and David cries out to the Lord in the midst of this time. Now, let's read Psalm 51 in that context. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, obviously, he had sinned against Bathsheba. He would sinned against Uriah and things that he had done there. But in him saying this, in you, in you only, have I sinned, it's, it is a... It's a recognition that, in the ultimate sense, David, as king over Israel, has sinned before God and sinned against God in his responsibilities over the people. So that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence. Or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Why are we going to this passage here? This is a critical moment. In David's life. This is a critical moment. You hear in this several things that are stunning in how ahead of his time and even ahead of the time that's right ahead of him, David is living in personally. Now he has sinned, he has sinned in a great way. And his fear here is that God will remove his presence from him. Now there's precedence for this. His predecessor, 
had God's presence removed from him, and he was driven to madness. If you go to 1 Samuel 15, let's go there real quick. 1 Samuel 15, verse 17. We'll start there. We see the situation that kind of precipitates this. To give you a little bit of background on it, um, Saul had been told by, by Samuel to attack the Amalekites and to completely destroy them. And his men spared the king and brought all the really good stuff back home. So there was plunder. But they were supposed to completely destroy everything, and he didn't do it. And when Samuel challenges him on it, he says, well, we were bringing it back for sacrifice, which isn't true. And so Samuel's saying, why did you disobey the Lord? So here's what he says. Samuel said, Although you were once small in your own eyes, did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission saying, Go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites and brought back Agag, their king. The soldiers took sheep and cattle for the plunder, from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God, in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. But Samuel replied, Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the voice of the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. For rebellion is like the sin of divination, and arrogance like the evil, idolat- evil of idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. And we see as he's leaving, when Samuel's leaving, Saul reaches out and grabs the hem of his his robe and it tears. And Samuel says, God's going to tear the kingdom out of your hands and he's going to give it to another. The next chapter is the anointing of David. And in 1 Samuel 16, 14, we find this. Says, now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. So in Psalm 51, we find David, and there's this heart cry of just don't don't remove your presence from me. I have sinned in such a great way. Please restore me, cleanse me. I mean, he's he is pleading before God. It's a heartfelt plea. And he's asking God to create in him a pure heart. That's a, that's, a, that's a new thing. Do a new work in me. Create in me a pure heart. And David, as we find in other Psalms and as we see Solomon's life, he, he speaks about this as well. We recognize that it's out of the heart that all of our actions are taken. And so David's asking for a new heart. But beyond this, too... He says, you do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. We spent a lot of time last week talking about all the bulls and all the rams and all the lambs and the sheep and the goats and everything that was sacrificed before the Lord and the dedication of the temple. And here's David, ahead of the temple, even 
coming about, echoing the words that we heard Samuel say, that it's, it's not sacrifices and burnt offerings ultimately that God wants. He's after our heart. And so David's coming to him in a heart attitude. He's recognizing, like we've spoken about before, it's, it's not about all these trappings. It's not about all of these processes. They point to something, and ultimately my heart has to be in the right place with you, God. And then at the end here he says, and then after all these things are settled, you'll receive the things that we want to be able to sacrifice to you. Because it's not an empty sacrifice. The heart is there in the right place. David is recognizing in this the greater reality that all of these burnt offerings and sacrifices are actually pointing towards. That sacrifice costs something. But ultimately, it's to cost us, us. All of these images, all of these rituals, all of these things that God has instilled and has established over time from way back with, even before Moses, with Abraham, all the way back to to Cain and Abel, you see that sacrifice is required But it's all, always pointing towards Jesus. It's all, always pointing towards the real, actual, ultimate culmination of history in Jesus, the Lamb of God, being slain on the cross. Everything points towards Him. Even this idea of a temple, a dwelling place for God, it all points towards Him. It all points towards a heavenly reality. So let's look at that a little bit here today. Let's go to John chapter 2, starting in verse three, uh, 13. In Scripture, this is where Jesus is going up to the temple he goes and he clears the temple because he's disgusted by what he sees there. This idea of cleansing the temple and making the temple about one thing is really important to God. And that should instruct us about our lives here. John 2, starting in verse 13. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, Get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews demanded of him, What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Who are you to turn over these tables? Who are you to call this your father's house? Who are you to come in and make such a ruckus here and clean out the temple like this? And Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. 
The Jews replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you are going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled that he had recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now this temple isn't the same temple that we were talking about last week. That was Solomon's temple. And you remember we were talking about this series of 400 years. The, the Jews were 400 years in Egypt. And after leaving Egypt, they were 400 years in the desert. And coming to the time where they built Solomon's temple. And his temple lasted for another roughly 400 years. All, roughly 400 years in each one of those. The temple was destroyed when they went in exile to Babylon. When they came back, they rebuilt the temple. And that was that, was that second temple. This, this, is, this is Herod's temple. This is something that he did. It took 46 years to build this temple. And Jesus says, listen, destroy this temple and I'll raise it again in three days. So their context, because they're there, in the presence of this earthly temple, is how could you, what, what are you talking about? You're a crazy man. But here's Jesus standing in this place where he's demonstrating something that's in between. He's at this transition. He's saying, everything that you have, you have known, everything that you have elevated, everything that you have, you have put as the ultimate here is still just the shadow of the real thing. And he's speaking about his body. He says, you destroyed this temple. And they have no clue what he's talking about. How many of us know that God's word is true, whether we understand it or not? He says, you destroy this temple, I'm going to raise it again in three days. And he's speaking about his body. Now, this is signifying a transition in our understanding of what the temple is truly meant to be. It's not meant to be a place that is built with human hands. It's not meant to be stone and gold and wood and all those things. Those are types and shadows of a heavenly reality. But Jesus is showing that his body is the temple. So if you destroy this temple, I'm going to raise it again in three days. And this is instructive to us about what our bodies are. And about who we are as the body of Christ. So Jesus is in this place where he's, he's ushering in a shift in understanding about what the temple is. And as he goes through his ministry, we see that transference as this temple, this earthly temple, really comes to an end, and the heavenly temple and the reality of the body of Christ comes online. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 8. Now, as we're turning here, I'm going to say, we're going to read a good portion of this, this part of Hebrews because there's so much rich theology in this. And I don't want you to miss it. The author of Hebrews does a wonderful job with an overall message of this. Jesus is better. Jesus is better than everything that you have known before. 
Everything points to him. Jesus is better. So at this point, leading up to this point in Hebrews here, just immediately preceding this, he goes into talking about how Jesus is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. I'm not going to go extensively into this because that's a whole other teaching. So we're not going to go into that. But suffice it to say, Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, which Melchizedek comes before Levi. It's outside of those, those tribes of Israel. It's an eternal type of priesthood. Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. Judah is not Levi. So this is a completely different and superior priesthood to the Levitical priesthood, which we've been talking about for several weeks now. Remember, it's the, only the Levites that could carry the presence of God in the ark, remember? Anybody else touches this? It's out of line. But Jesus is a superior priest. So we use that as context. Go read Hebrews chapter chapter 7. You'll understand much more about this, and I encourage you to do so. And we'll probably have a, a, a message about that specifically. But suffice it to say, coming into this, recognize Jesus is a superior priest, and he's a priest from an eternal perspective. So listen to what the author of Hebrews has to say. The point of what we are saying is this. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven and who serves in the sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by man. Every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices, and so it was necessary for this one also to have something to offer. If he were on earth, he would not be a priest, for there are already, for there are already men who offer gifts prescribed by the law. That's referencing the Levitical priesthood. It's saying Jesus... He's, he's born into the wrong family for him to be able to do that. Okay? They serve at a sanctuary that is a copy and shadow of what is in heaven. This is why Moses was warned when he was about to build the tabernacle. See to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But the ministry of Jesus, the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to theirs as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one. And it is founded on better promises. So we've spent a lot of time talking about all that was done to set up the tabernacle, to set up the, the temple, to recognize the Ark of the Covenant and the presence of God. And all of these things, as we see here, are just types and shadows of a true heavenly reality. It's all pointing towards that. It's all made with a very specific pattern because it's all meant to be consistent to the best possible representation here on earth we're capable of, of a heavenly reality, which we're not going to see ultimately until we go to heaven. But Jesus is from that place. Jesus ministers in that place. And just like what we see here as a shadow and the real is there, the new covenant, which Jesus is the mediator for, is far superior to everything that had ever come before. So what the author of Hebrews is saying. Saying all the things that you know, as glorious and as magnificent as they are, they are just shadows of the real. And he's saying, Jesus is our priest. For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by hand to lead them 
out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant and I turned away from them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. Remember what David was asking for. Create in me a pure heart. Here's God saying, I'm going to I'm going to write my laws in their minds and and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. For I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. By calling this covenant new, he has made the first one obsolete, and whatever is obsolete and aging will soon disappear." So we see here that God has a completely different covenant in mind. It's made on a better promise, and it was going to require a greater sacrifice than the old covenant did. Because remember, the old covenant is temporary. It's insufficient. It's only a type. It's only a shadow. It can only do so much. What it does hints at and hints towards what the true covenant is able to do. So let's look at this. Now, the first covenant had regulations for worship and also earthly, an earthly sanctuary. A tabernacle was set up. In its first room were the lampstand, the table, and the consecrated bread. This was called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a room called the most holy place, which had the golden altar of incense and the gold-covered ark of the covenant. This ark contained the gold jar of manna, Aaron's staff that had been head-butted, and the tablets of the stone tablets of the covenant. Above the ark were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the atonement cover. But we cannot discuss these things in detail now. So the author of Hebrews just kind of sets the, sets the stage for this. There's a whole lot more. Go read the books about this. I'm just going to want to bring this back into our ram so we can understand what's going on here. When everything had been arranged like this, the priests entered regularly into the outer room to carry on their ministry. But only the high priest entered the inner room, and that only once a year, and never without blood, which he offered for himself and for the sins of the people, so the sins the people had committed in ignorance. I just want to pause here. What he's referencing is the Day of Atonement. One time every year, the high priest, who was chosen by God, would go into that most holy place to offer sacrifice for himself and for the people. That Day of Atonement is also called Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur this year was on Thursday, just this past Thursday. So we're in the season. I just thought that was the timing of the Lord for us as a people, okay? That he would bring us to this passage in this time. The Holy Spirit was showing by this, that the, by this that the way into the most holy place had not yet been disclosed as long as the first tabernacle was still standing. This is an illustration for the present time indicating that the gifts and sacrifices being all offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshiper. They are only a matter of food and drink and various ceremonial washings, external regulations applying until the time of the new order. So here he is saying, we could not enter that most holy place 
The way in hadn't really been disclosed to us. It was shrouded in mystery. Only one person, once a year, chosen by God, could go in there and do that. And they would wait outside for that priest. They had had to tie a rope around him and a bell to see if he made it out alive. Because they couldn't go in and get him if he didn't. They had to pull him back out. Listen, the presence of the Lord is a real, magnificent, awesome, and powerful reality. We love it. But we need to honor him. It's a serious thing. Pick up in verse 11 here, we see this. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made. That is to say, not a part of this creation. So when Jesus made his sacrifice, he didn't do it in the earthly temple. He did it in the heavenly temple. The real thing that the earthly temple is the type and shadow of. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. How much more then will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God. Somebody say, Amen. 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 That is an eternal reality as declared right here in Scripture. You need to highlight that. You need to underline that because the enemy will come and attack you at that level time and time again and tell you you are unworthy and you're still guilty. What's what's he saying here? They had to go year after year after year. As they discovered sin, they would have to go and bring a sacrifice for the priest to go and, 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 and put before the Lord for them. But it only cleansed them outwardly. It didn't do the work internally. The sacrifice of Jesus is far greater. He does a work inside us. He transforms us. And he did it once for all time. Once for all time. For this reason, Christ is the mediator of a new covenant, that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance now that he has died as a ransom to set them free from the sins committed under the first covenant. In the case of a will, it is necessary to prove the death of the one who made it, because a will is in force only when somebody has died. It never takes effect while the one who made it is living. This is why even the first covenant was not put into effect without blood. When Moses had proclaimed every command the law of the law to all the people, he took the blood of calves together with water, scarlet wool, and branches of hyssop, and sprinkled the scroll and all the people. Do you remember what David said in Psalm 51? He said, cleanse me with hyssop. He's speaking about 
about this type of cleansing, when, when the priest would dip the hyssop in the blood and he would, he would sprinkle it on the offender. And so here's, here's David saying, cleanse me with hyssop. I need the blood. Tabernacle and everything used in its ceremonies. In fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. That just sounds weird. If I get blood on me, I have to go wash myself clean. I don't know about you. Anybody else think that way? Right? Oh, I've got blood all over me. I gotta go wash my hands. The law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood. And this next statement is one that I would encourage for you to allow to sink in and ruminate and meditate on this. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Now, in this day and age, and for us as Christians, we acknowledge that we are washed clean by the blood of the Lamb, by Jesus Christ, His shed blood for us. We're talking about this new covenant. We're recognizing these things in a deep, theological, doctrinal way for us to recognize that it is by His blood that this new covenant has been enacted. But I want you to think about what that was like in the Old Testament when, when they would go and actually... When you've been found guilty and you have to bring an animal that must be sacrificed before the Lord, you are watching another life being taken for your decisions, for your sin. You're watching an animal be slaughtered. You're watching them being butchered there. You're watching them being burned as a sacrifice to the Lord because of your sin. It makes you not want to sin so much, right? For one thing, it's going to be costly to you. Economically, it's costly to you. But even greater than that, you are watching another life being exchanged for what you have done. We don't have that. What we have, though, is a greater reality And it's important for us to recognize that Jesus Christ, when he went to the cross for us and for our sin, he paid the price for everything that we have done or ever will do. And it cost him his life brutally. That should have been us. Every single one of us. I don't care how good you think you are. I don't care how bad you think you are. All of us deserved what he got. And he did it willingly for us. Somebody help me, where was I? Ah, verse 23. But think about this. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. It's the basis for forgiveness. The price has been paid. I think C.S. Lewis does a really good job with this in, in the Chronicles of Narnia, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. We know Edmund is the one who has sinned against his brothers and his brother and sisters. He's betrayed them to the enemy, and the enemy demands that the price be paid. 
And it's Aslan who's the type of Christ who goes in there and says, I will do it. I will pay the price. And we see in that, in Edmund, a life forever changed when he recognizes what it was that he owed and what Christ did for him. It was necessary then for the, co- for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these sacrifices. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a man-made sanctuary that was only a copy of the true one. He entered heaven itself, now to appear for us in God's presence. Nor did he enter heaven to offer himself again and again, the way the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood that is not his own. Then Christ would have had to suffer many times since the creation of the world. But now he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to do away with sin by sacrifice of himself. Just as man is destined destined to die once and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people, and he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. See, Jesus is not only the priest offering the blood, the sacrifice, he is the sacrifice. He is the blood. It's his blood. He is the lamb. The perfect, pure, spotless lamb. He's playing all the important roles in this atonement. And he does it once for all time. He doesn't have to keep going and doing this. It was what everything was designed and destined for. That Jesus would come as the pure and spotless lamb of God to take away the sins of the world. And to bring salvation to many. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming. Not the realities themselves. For this reason it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all in the world and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible, impossible, say with me, impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifice and offering you did not desire. There it is again. You heard Samuel say it. You heard David say it. This isn't what you're actually after, is it? But a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. Remember what Samuel said, that obedience is better than sacrifice. And so what is it that you're hearing Jesus saying? You didn't want the sacrifice, you wanted obedience. And Jesus is obedient unto the point of sacrificing himself for us. First he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. It had to happen. It was required, but it was insufficient. 
Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. That's what we just said. He was obedient to the point of being the sacrifice once for all. And we have been made holy through that sacrifice. Day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when this priest had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. That is you. That is you. He has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First, he says, this is the covenant I will make with them. After that time, says the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And where these have been forgiven, there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. There's nothing you can do to earn what Jesus has done for you. There's nothing you can pay to buy it. There's no more sacrifices to make. He is the one and only way. He did it. It's been done. Never to be done again. It's something that we can freely enter into. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Remember, one priest could enter the most holy place one time a year. And remember, the author of Hebrews said it had not yet been disclosed the access to how we would have access to that that most holy place. What were the means by that? It had not been disclosed. But Jesus is the answer. Because he went into the heavenly reality and offered the sacrifice there. And it says here, a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body. When we say his body was broken for us, his flesh was torn, the The curtain of this tent was torn open, giving access to the Father, to that most holy place. We know that in that that time, Mark tells us that the curtain between the holy place and the most holy place was torn in two from top to bottom. It was an earthly reality that was demonstrating the heavenly reality that had taken place. There's no longer a need for that curtain to be there. And God tore it from top to bottom. 
Because we have access to that most holy place now through Jesus Christ. We live in a better covenant. It is far superior in every way to that which came before. Let's move on here to 1 Peter chapter 2. Am I talking to somebody today? Yes? Wrong book. I was in the wrong book. I was in James. This isn't what I was supposed to talk about. That's the danger of reading a manual Bible and not the notes here. All right, 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 4. And we see Peter talking about a reality that we now, as the body of Christ, the believers and followers of Jesus, live in. You have to know who you are. This is going to speak about the temple. This is going to speak about the priests. This is going to speak about the house of God. Because just as Jesus is the high priest over all of this, just as he talked about his own body as the temple, you are now, if you are a disciple of Christ, if he has come and he is living as king over your heart, over your life, you are now found in this passage. And you need to know who you are. Because we need to have with sober eyes, in a clear mind, an understanding of what he has called us to do and to be. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by men but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Think about everything that we just read in Hebrews. He is the high priest. He is the one who we are offering sacrifices through. Not blood, not goats, none of those things. But we offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For in Scripture it says, See, I lay a stone in Zion, a chosen and precious cornerstone, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. If you put your trust in Jesus, you will never be put to shame. That's your promise right there. Highlight it, underline it, star it, do something. Because you want to find that one again. Now to you who believe, this stone is precious. But to those who do not believe, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. And a stone that causes men to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. They stumble because they disobey the message, which is also what they were destined for. But you, say me, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God, Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy.
You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. This is what God had intended from the beginning. This is what he had intended. He had intended to have sons, not only male. Don't get hung up on that. He had intended to have sons as his representatives in the earth who would demonstrate his glory, who would demonstrate his wisdom, his power, his order in the earth, ruling and reigning with him. Jesus is our cornerstone. Do you remember when we spoke about this? As God is building up his house, everything references back to that cornerstone. It is the first stone that is set. It establishes everything that comes beyond that. You have to be plumb, level, and square with respect to that cornerstone. You don't want to be out of alignment with that cornerstone. That's dysfunction in the house. God calls us to be in alignment with his cornerstone. And he has imparted his spirit into each and every one of you who's called by his name. So that you would represent Jesus, represent Jesus in every sphere that you are in. He's called us to be a nation of royal priests. The priests are the ones who get to carry his presence everywhere. They're called to minister before him. And Jesus, who is our high priest, demonstrates his sacrifice by obedience to the Father. Remember, it's not the, it's not the burnt offerings you want. You want obedience. When David says, you want a broken and contrite heart before you, that's yieldedness. That's submission. That's surrender. That's obedience to the Father. Let's go to Romans 12. We're going to end here. Verses 1 and 2. My hope is that today, and in the preceding weeks that we've spent here in the Word, we can look on this passage with some fresh eyes. Considering what God is talking about. The sacrifices in our lives. The context of all the blood that's been shed across the centuries as a type and shadow pointing towards the real. That all those who came before us who are in that Old Testament, the, the prophets who are searching the scriptures trying to find out when it is that this Christ is going to come and the what this new reality is supposed to look like in this new covenant that God is hinting towards, what that life is supposed to be like for those who are going to be living in that time. We live in that time. 
And so we're encouraged with this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Remember what it was that Jesus said, I've come to do your will. I've come to obey you. I've come to obey you unto death. And he did. He laid his life down as the ultimate sacrifice. And here's what we're admonished to do. We're admonished to likewise surrender our lives and offer our lives, our bodies, as living sacrifices. We've been called out from the world. We're not to be conformed to the pattern of it, or to be conformed to the pattern of Christ. It's the Spirit's work to conform us to the image of the Son, so that when they see us, they see Jesus. We're called to the fellowship of his sufferings. You remember that? We're to rejoice when we suffer for Jesus because we're demonstrating him in that process. We glorify our Father in our sufferings. We're encouraged to persevere because it's in those times and in those moments of hardship where we stand apart and we represent God in a time where all would expect us to do differently because that's the pattern of this world. But we're conformed to a different image. We're representing a different image. Our lives are to be holy lives because of what he did for us. We only have the ability to live a holy life because of what he did for us. I want us to consider the trajectory we've been on through these past several weeks. Looking at this history, going all the way back to the father of faith, Abraham, there on the mountain with God. Having God promising to him, There at Hebron, all that will follow because he trusts in God. We've read about many of the ways they fell off track and what it took to bring them back on. In all the ways that God had designed to demonstrate the importance 
of his presence being with them. If you look at Moses in Exodus 33, there's the passage leading into that where God's telling him, I'm going to send you up there, but I'm not going to go with you because, I don't know, I might lose my temper. And Moses says, I don't want to go without your presence. Because if your presence doesn't go with us, what's going to distinguish us from everybody else that's on the face of this planet? And so God says, okay, I'll go with you. My presence will be with you. That reality is still real for us here today. If his presence isn't with us, what, what distinguishes us from any other group of people? meeting together for any other reason. We're called to carry his presence, to host his presence, to be submitted to his presence. He established all these ways to show what it was like for him to dwell amongst the people. But ultimately, Jesus Emmanuel, God with us, is the fulfillment of that. We are the body of Christ. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit. Individually, corporately, we host the Holy Spirit. Jesus went and he overturned the, he overturned the tables in the temple because it showed a drift from the purpose that they were there for. Holiness. Holiness and intimacy with God. It's not just about the form, and it's not just about the intimacy. It's the intimacy and the holiness that were needed. We've looked at the life of David. Remember, his, his rule and his reign was started in that place of covenant friendship with God there in Hebron. But then God made new covenant with him there in Jerusalem after he had gone through the process of recognizing That he could not take the presence of God as a familiar thing. As intimate as that man, that king was with God, he had to come to a place to recognize that it is the holiness of God that must be revered supremely. And it's in that tension that we live. He is a friend that is closer than a brother. He knows all of our most deepest, inmost thoughts and battles and struggles and everything. And he brings healing to us. He brings encouragement to us. He lifts us up out of all those things. He knows the the hairs that are on our head. But he is the God of the universe. And he is not to be trifled with. And his presence is never to be considered as a cheap thing. It is the most precious thing that we have. It is what distinguishes us from every other people. And God is desirous for us as his people to fully step into and mature as those royal priests with Jesus as our chief priest. We come to Jesus. You've heard this from so many places. This pulpit, other pulpits, otherwise. It's not just about coming to Jesus so that you can go to heaven when you die. 
That's not the ultimate point. If that was the ultimate point, Jesus, come into my life. Thank you for dying for my sins. We're in heaven. That was never the point. That's not to diminish the importance and the significance of heaven being our home and the promise to us that we're going to heaven when we die because we have come to Christ. But the point is that we live in that heavenly reality now as a royal priesthood before God with hearts and lives that are set apart from the pattern of this world representing him in time and space bringing light into darkness and destroying the works of the devil. You've been called to a dynamic life here on earth that no matter what trials you face, no matter what struggles you face, no matter what this earthly reality looks like, you exist in a heavenly reality that is supreme to the one that you're in here on earth. And you're not doing it individually, although your life before God is an individual matter. You're also doing it corporately with the body of Christ. Because we need one another. He designed it that way. God is calling us upward. I've just been getting the sense from the Lord that he is, he is speaking to us to lift our eyes and lift our gaze to him and recognize that we are more than we thought we were. Not as a prideful thing, but a full recognition of the importance of who we are here in the earth and the significance of what our lives are. And for us to really fully take into consideration the, the necessity and the requirement of us to live lives that are fully committed and devoted to him. We are living in a time in history where you have to make some pretty clear decisions about who it is that you're following. Because the opportunity, if you want to call it that, for you to live a comfortable Christian life is diminishing quickly. It's diminishing quickly. You can't rest your feet on other platforms. They're starting to sink. If you found your stability there in the past, whatever they be, they can even be good things. But if you found your stability there, the Lord is removing it because he wants you resting your feet and standing on his promises and on his covenant and on his reality. And if you don't know Jesus, you need to get to know him. Everything we have spoken about here today about his blood poured out for you, about his body broken for you, about him making a new and living way for you to come into the most holy place before God is a reality. And without it, your destination is secure. You will be eternally apart from God. Come follow him. It's a better way. If you lose your life, For his sake, you will find it. He's designed each and every one of us with a missing element, with a missing engine 
to fully empower how he's designed us to be and who he's designed us to be. And that void is meant to be filled by him. When the Holy Spirit comes and lives in your life, he empowers you for the works that God has created for you to do. And you can't do it apart from him. He has a destiny and a calling and a purpose for each and every one of you. And if you don't know him yet, surrender your life to Jesus. If you do know him and you've been trying to do it in your own strength, surrender your life to Jesus. If you've been walking apart from him and you've known him, but you're living in a different way, surrender your life to Jesus. It's always, always, always about us getting out of the way so that he can do what he is going to do through us. God has glorious things that he has planned for his church. He has glorious things that he has planned to demonstrate in time and space, and we get to participate in them if we choose to. You get to participate them in them if you choose to. His promise was that we would do greater works than what he demonstrated here. But we only get to do that if we choose to. Let's do some communion. Jack, may I have one of those, please? We as a people are on a journey. The Lord is deepening our understanding of these things. He's been calling us into his word deeper and richer because there's things that we have unwittingly taken for granted because we haven't been that deep in his word for a while. And he's calling us deeper into it. He's longing for us to know more than we did before. He's longing for us to not be satisfied with our level of understanding that we've carried with us for years. He's longing for us to long for him and to find him in his word, to find him in prayer, to find him in worship, to find him as we're walking through our lives, to find him in relationship with one another. He's calling us as a people upward. He's, just pay attention, he has been working a foundation here for us as a people to host his presence in ways that we have not before. That should excite you. Because it means God's preparing the field right now for what he's going to do here. And he's preparing your hearts. He's preparing your hearts. He's plowing in you. Show of hands. Who has been stirred in their spirit by what God has been sharing here over these past several weeks? Amen. Look around. Raise your hand. Keep your hands up. Look around. God's been plowing in you. He's been plowing in you. 
He's been feeding you in this time. He's been sowing things in that because he intends to produce a harvest in us as a people. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Who's been feeling hungrier to get into their word? Amen. God's doing that. He wants to stir us in those deep places. He wants to build us in those places. He wants to do a good work in us. He wants to blow our doors off. Not just so that we have cool stuff that happens here. So that we, the people of God, will host the presence of God here in such a way that it will transform our lives and it will emanate from this place and transform lives of people around us in this community. How many of you know that there's a history here in this place of God drawing people right in off the highway to come in here? How many of you know that by us hosting the presence of the Lord, it affects the atmosphere here in this county? It also affects other churches in this place. Because it's not just about our Father's house, folks. God's church here in Southern Maryland has a destiny upon it. And we are a part of his body here in Southern Maryland. And I believe God's putting a desire in our hearts to do our part to increase his manifest presence in this location at this time. And I think there's spillover that happens to other places. I think we probably get spillover from other churches here. And we just don't know it. It's God's intention for people to come to him. For the lost to come and be found. For people who are atheists, who are pagans, who are agnostics, who are Buddhists, who are Muslims, who are everything else other than Christian, to be found in him. He transforms lives. He's transformed your life, and he's still doing it. Hallelujah. As we go to this time of communion, it's important for us to remember that we are admonished that when we come to the, to the communion table, for us to remember what it is that Jesus has done for us. It's not only the surface things that we tend to think about that are incredibly weighty. The physical reality of him going to the cross for us. The physical reality of his hands and feet being nailed to the cross for the spear that pierced his side. For the fact that he was drowning there in his own lungs, hanging there on the cross, after having been beaten and torn apart for you. He was innocent. Yet he hung there for you, for your guilt, for my guilt, for our guilt, for the guilt of all mankind. He hung there. He chose to. That is a reality.
Yet today we read about a far superior reality of why he chose to do it. Because he was able to offer his blood as the chief priest once for all time, for all mankind. He did that. He did that. He made a way for every single one of us. And we have forgiveness of sins because of it. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you, our high priest, offered yourself as the sacrifice. We thank you that you have shown us the pattern by which we are to live, Lord. That we are to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. Lord, just as you came to do the will of your Father, let us come to do the will of our Father. Lord, as you came as the living stone, Help us to learn how to more fully become living stones as you build us up as your house. Jesus, we thank you for your body broken for us. We thank you for the veil torn. We thank you for your blood poured out for us and the new covenant that you were the mediator of. Lord, we thank you for this to the extreme understanding that we are able to hold in our own minds and our own hearts at this time, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, for the reality that's far superior than anything that we could achieve in our own understanding. Help us today, Lord, to live in that reality fully in you. Hallelujah. Take and eat and drink in the name of Jesus. As we finish today, I want to encourage you to reflect on this this week. I would encourage you to go back into that portion of Hebrews that we just read through today. Read it again. Read it again another time. Spend some time ruminating in that. Because there is such rich stuff that takes several passes for us to really lay hold of. Consider that reality in everything that we've been speaking about. Ask the Lord, Lord, what are you showing me in this? Speak to me now in my, in my situation right now. Whether I'm in a place of victory and encouragement, things are going well in my life. Or I'm in a place of depression and heartache and darkness. 
He's speaking to each and every one of us in this moment. Spend some time with him in it today. Will you please stand? Father, I just bless your people. I thank you, Lord, for how you've been stirring us. I thank you for the plowing you've been doing in our hearts, Lord. I thank you, Lord, how you have been drawing us into your word. I thank you, Lord, that even today we can recognize the challenges that we've been facing, Lord. Things that would try to distract us from you, Lord. Lord, I ask right now that you would lift our heads above the fog that we've been walking around in. And that you, Holy Spirit, would come and speak to our hearts. That you would call us by name. That you would remind us that we are a chosen people. That we are a royal priesthood. priesthood, That we are a holy nation. Lord, that we are living in a time and in an era that generations for thousands of years have looked into, Lord, with hopeful expectancy. Lord, that we have a cloud of witnesses that are around us right now at this very moment, looking over the edge at us, cheering us on, Lord, for the races that we are running. Lord, I thank you that you have borne us into this time and that you have set boundaries around each of us, Lord, that contain this time. Lord, help us to recognize that we are stewarding a great and wonderful responsibility. And that it is only by your strength that we're able to do these things, Lord. But Father, I ask that our eyes would be focused on Jesus. That we would be focused on our cornerstone. Lord, that we would allow you and your word to measure us against your cornerstone. Lord, that you would bring us by your tender hand, by your kindness, Lord, into repentance and align our lives with your cornerstone. We thank you, Jesus. We thank you, Jesus, that you are our king, you are our priest, you are the lion of the tribe of Judah, and you are the pure and spotless lamb, slain before the foundations of the earth. We thank you for your sacrifice, and we ask right now, Lord, that you would bring your presence here among us, your people. Lord, I ask that you would increase unity among us as your people. I ask, Lord, that you would deepen us in our understanding of of your word. Lord, that you would refresh us and strengthen us in prayer. Father, that we would rejoice and be thankful in our worship. And Father, I ask that we would experience love, kindness, tenderness, forgiveness in our fellowship. We bless your holy name, Jesus. Amen. Everybody have a great week. If you need prayer, I just invite you to come here to the altar. God is for you, not against you. He has great things for us. God bless you. We'll see you next week. You're welcome.